Please do turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be there in just a short while. You know, the reason why I've brought this series before Christmas to ask the question, why do we celebrate at Christmas? is because simply in the culture in which we live, the vast majority of people are celebrating at Christmas, aren't they? But the question is, why are they celebrating? Do those celebrations have much to distinguish themselves from other reasons to celebrate that people do from month to month, from week to week, as they celebrate birthdays, other birthdays, as they celebrate anniversaries, as they celebrate football, celebrate football wins, or other things. What is the special reason for celebrating this Christmas time? Long before this season was well recognised as the time of year that we remember the wonderful gift of God's Son to humankind. Long before Christianity became a popular religion, the religion of the Roman Empire, and friends, that wasn't a good development. Globally today, Christianity remains a popular religion, at least nominally so. But long before any of this, there was a Christmas people. People who celebrated God's amazing gift of a saviour. A redeemer who would snatch souls from the jaws of death and raise us up together with him. The tidings of great joy, of God's favour towards men, is firmly established in our recognising and embracing God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This means accepting the long-promised Messiah and declaring him as Lord, God in the flesh, come to usher in his kingdom rule now and forevermore. These Christmas people were a strange bunch with seemingly not a lot in common from many different places with numerous languages and cultural backgrounds. What could possibly unite them? Especially the proud and unique Jews with a culture like no other, a God like no other, and a father, Abraham, like no other group of people. But was God really their God? Did they truly know him? Back in the early days of the church, there were culture wars, disagreements over worship, which days to gather, which songs to sing, the usual stuff. Many of them struggled to give up their cultural baggage. You know, the unhelpful stuff that got in the way of true devotion to Christ. And it hindered properly loving those who at least at the surface level looked different to them. This is why this book to the Hebrews is written. You see, the Jews felt more comfortable with other Jews so often, with their familiar practices. They felt more comfort with these things than 
with some of these, well, awkward Gentiles. And to be honest, for some of the Gentiles, these stuffy old Jews just didn't get with the times. They were too rigid in their traditions. Might it be better to part company? Wouldn't it be easier to go back to how things used to be? Let's read from Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. That's the title of this sermon. Grace to help us in our time of need. Another reason why we celebrate this wondrous time of year. If you're taking notes this morning, then I've got three H's for you. Firstly, have, or you could say to have. Secondly, to hold, to have, to hold. And thirdly, help, help. Firstly, have. Do you have? For a lot of people, Christmas is all about getting, isn't it? Have I got enough? Will I get what I want this Christmas time? What is it that you really need? That's a better question. I think it's fair to say that the author of the book of Hebrews was the Apostle Paul. Now this is a question that's often raised, right? And the, the, the popular thing is to say, well, we don't really know. But I'm glad that there was at least one commentary on the, on the shelves at Bible College that said, the letter, of, letter to the Hebrews... The Apostle Paul's letter to the Hebrews. And whilst his name is not given in the book, the language is very much in Luke's style. Luke wrote Luke's Gospel and he wrote the Acts of the Apostles as well, his second instalment. And we know, don't we, of the Apostle Paul and Luke's partnership in the Gospel. How, how much of what um, Luke wrote, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, concerned Paul and concern Paul's preaching. And so I think this is what we find here in, in Hebrews. The familiarity that the speaker, and th this is uh, most likely a sermon that has been transcribed by Luke, the speaker's facility with the Old Testament, the ease with which he quotes texts, how he builds his appeal to the listeners, and the depth of his familiarity with the Jewish religion and practices is very much in Paul's style. The letter to the Hebrews is a masterful presentation of Jesus, the Messiah. Who he is, the eternal Son of God, who seals the greater covenant and who is entitled to the full inheritance from the Father. 
Paul says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We have. Do we have? That's the first point. The first challenge this morning. Do you have this great high priest? In the struggle for peace in this earthly life, are we truly embracing our Lord? One of the ways that we can determine how well we've embraced Christ is to see how well we're embracing our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we have the Son? Or are we, like some of the Jews in the first century, are we inclined to separate ourselves from those who we aren't comfortable with? Are we happier in our own cultural environment to the exclusion of those who are different to us. And friends, as I say this, it's a message to each and every one of us. I'm not, I'm not zeroing in on any one people group here. All right? It's a challenge to us all. Because we can all be comfortable in familiar surroundings and familiar settings. What do we find a challenge when dealing with our brothers and sisters who are different? to us perhaps it's awkward dealing with folks from a different generation those who are older than us or how about those who are younger than us how about those with a different language or different clothes or those with different food or song preferences friends we are by the grace of God a melting pot of cultures as we saw last night, so wonderfully blessed with carols sung in different languages, fed with foods from different cultures, blessed with the ability to communicate also during the games, non-verbally. Sometimes we have to strive to communicate cross-culturally, don't we? I'm so glad that God is uniting this fellowship bringing together so many men, women and children from different backgrounds. What a wonderful display to the community around us. The harmony that only the Lord God himself can create. Is that your vision for the church? Something remarkably different from what the world has on offer? The love for fellow image bearers of God who at surface level don't look too similar. But when we open our arms to one another, such God-glorifying grace and joy is displayed. The way the church unites is by ignoring superficial differences and uniting on the core beliefs about who Jesus is. That God himself has entered time and space to bring Sabbath rest to all his peoples. <coughs> to all his people from out of, out of every tongue, tribe and nation. True Christianity is not an anything goes, easy believism that ticks all the popular boxes of this day. No. We hold fast our confession, as Paul says here in these verses that's my second point hold fast so firstly do we have a great high priest are we expressing his love amongst us 
Secondly, uh, if so, we hold fast to our confession. Despite our cultural differences and the work that we do uh, to unite and embrace, despite these things, we do not discount our confession about who Jesus is. And we do not discount the truth of his word, his enduring word that brings light and life to every man and woman. What we believe about Jesus truly matters. Jesus is not the coolest dude that ever lived. Someone made in our cultural image and who endorses and encourages our personal agendas and our political wants. Jesus is Lord of all. He rules in righteousness, upholding his truth and accomplishing his plans and purposes to his own eternal glory. Friends, our agendas and preferences are swept aside, even as we are told in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 8. We were reminded of this last week. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. God's agenda is his agenda. God moves where he moves in order that the glory goes to him and him alone. And that's why he builds a church out of every nation, tribe and tongue. That's why he creates a unity in his spirit from among many nations. That's why he calls us to lay down our preferences, holding fast to the core of the truth about who Jesus is. You see, the book of Hebrews is stacked full of declarations about the majesty and the might of King Jesus. It reminds the Jewish believers that that there is now no going back to the old ways. There is no point in returning to the old Jerusalem. Instead, there is a heavenly Jerusalem to which through Christ we have come. If indeed we are now part of the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, Hebrews 12, 23. We now have a mediator, even Jesus himself, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood uh, cried out to God from the ground where it was spilt, how much more does the blood of God's firstborn son speak? for those for whom it was willingly given. So let us hold fast to our confession of who Jesus is. How glorious, how marvellous, how wonderful, the one whom angels worship. Friends, we cannot accommodate the world, which calls us to rebrand Christmas as the Winterval or the winter festival or the festival of lights by the grace of God by the common grace of God there is enjoyment there are festivities across humankind there is goodwill amongst men or at least a measure of it by the grace of God we're not all as bad as we could be 
But there is only one Saviour. There is only one birth that brought the Lord of glory to this world and through whom we can find salvation if we come to him and maintain this glorious confession of who he is. A God who is worthy of worship. The previous chapter to the one that we've read from in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 challenges us like this. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So is our confidence and our boasting in Christ? There's lots of confidence. There's lots of boasting in our world today, right? Many different flavours. Many different agendas. But the call of the Bible, the call of the living God, is that our boast and our confidence is in Christ alone. Then we can find unity. Then God is glorified. So to what extent is our confidence in Christ? Has our confession of who Jesus is been tested in any way? Think about your own lives for a moment. Did we or will we stand on the day of trial? When our work colleagues ask us what we did on the weekend, what's our response? When we're invited to compromise our faith by going along with the crowd, by engaging in dishonest work practices, by that I mean ignoring what is lawful practice, showing partiality or pursuing dishonest gain, or giving in to temptation to indulge in ungodly intoxication or sexual practices. That means drinking excessively or taking illegal drugs or engaging in sexual activity outside of the marriage bed. Yes. These things are unpopular to state in our day and age. Similarly, there are sins that we commit by failing to do what we ought to do. Those are sins of, that we commit willingly and willfully, right, that we know are wrong. But there are sins we commit by failing to do what we ought to do, such as keeping our promises to love and honour our spouses. Or to invest our time and emotions in raising our children in the love and knowledge of the Lord. Or in loving our neighbours like ourselves. When we fail to do those things, those, are sin those things are sinful. Friends, I hope that like me, as you've listened to these charges, you're filled with a sense of our weakness and occasional failure. Yet as Paul says here, our great high priest is one who is knowledgeable and sympathetic to our situation. And this is why we hold fast our confession, friends. Because without a saviour who died for us whilst we were his enemies, we would have no hope. We would have no reason to celebrate, truly and eternally. But praise God we do because he has sent us his help 
in Christ. Third point. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. If you're tempted to think your sin is unique, that in some way you've slipped through the net and that God could not possibly love you, not possibly forgive you, friends, then think again. Because we're told clearly here that Christ has in every respect been tempted as we are. Yet he is without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need, in our time of need, in your time of need, in that moment where the battle is raging the hardest. Friends, we have a sympathetic saviour. Think about that for a moment. If Jesus was a mere human being like us, like one of us, committed no sin, well, wouldn't it be a temptation to him to take the uh, righteous position and look down on, on us sinners, wag his finger and judge us? Yet he doesn't do that. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 11, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call, sorry, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, said Jesus. Jesus came not to judge us, but to call us to faith and hope in him. In the most Jewish of the Gospels, Jesus declares that he, God, is not interested in their outward sacrifices at the temple and elsewhere because they could never achieve holiness for them. They could never wash away the stain of sin. But instead, he came to call sinners everywhere to himself in order that he might show us mercy and through us who have heard that call and responded to continue to demonstrate his ongoing mercy in life-changing attitudes towards one another. If we were already righteous, why would we need the righteousness of Christ? But we need his righteousness. We need his help. And he is able to sympathise with every one of our weaknesses. The next chapter in Hebrews says that Christ is so effective a sacrifice because he so closely identifies with us. Jesus knows our every weakness. Friend, he knows your weakness and mine. And he extends mercy and grace to you in your time of need. That's worth celebrating. That's worth having a party. When is your time of need 
Well, ultimately and certainly, it's when we stand before the throne on the day of judgment. Then we will have great need in our defence. But if we have not been reconciled to God before then, we will be in great trouble and great distress. We are unable to help or defend ourselves against holy God. But Christ is able. He is the obedient son where we have been disobedient children. He has been appointed as our great high priest, as our mediator by his father in heaven. From chapter 5 and verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So how are we doing? Has Christ won us over to his side? Are we striving to love others as Christ first loved us? Is all our cultural baggage and personal preferences for worship and life in the body laid down and sacrificed gladly as we pursue unity and the building up of the church to which we've been called? Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Verse 9, chapter 5. Not those who remain stubbornly disobedient. So as we make our preparations for Christmas, as we ready ourselves to receive God's gift of his Son, our Saviour, are we ready, like wise men, to prostrate ourselves? to bow down to the ground before him and to present our most precious gifts, all that we are and all that we have. Many in the Jewish community of believers at the time of Paul's sermon had become dull of hearing, we're told in verse 11. They ought by now, says Paul, to have become teachers, but they were still in need of milk. The spiritual basics. There's nothing wrong, friends, with admitting that. I count myself among you. As we look to the year ahead, what opportunities for growth is the Lord presenting to us? Because if we are in Christ, if we have a great high priest, if he is helping us, there is truly nothing to hold us back. Because Jesus has unlimited mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So why celebrate Christmas, friends? Need I say more? Let's bow our heads in prayer.